In that case, he said in the sudden silence, I have worked out, with reference to calorific tables, a regime that will give every man here a nourishing three meals a day. The senior wrangler frowned. Three meals? Three meals? What kind of person has three meals a day? Someone who can't afford nine, said Ponder flatly. We could eke out the money if we concentrate on a healthy diet of grains and fresh vegetables. That would allow us to keep the cheese board with a choice of, say, three types of cheese. Three cheeses isn't a choice, it's a penance, said the lecturer in recent runes. Or we could play a game of football, gentlemen, said Ridcully, clapping his hands together cheerfully. One game, that's all. How hard would that be? As hard as a face full of hobnails, perhaps, said the chair of indefinite studies. People get trodden into the cobbles. If all else fails, we will find volunteers from the student body, said Ridcully. Corpse might be a better word. The arch-chancellor leaned back in his chair. What makes a wizard, gentlemen? A facility with magic? Yes, of course, but around this table we know this is not, for the right kind of mind, hard to obtain. It does not, as it were, happen like magic. Good heavens, witches manage it. But what makes a magic user is a certain cast of mind which looks a little deeper into the world, and the way it works, the way its currents twist the fortunes of mankind, etc., etc. In short, they should be the kind of person who might calculate that a guaranteed double first is worth the occasional inconvenience of sliding down the street on their teeth. Are you seriously suggesting that we give out degrees for mere physical prowess? said the chair of indefinite studies. No, of course not. I am seriously suggesting that we give out degrees for extreme physical prowess. May I remind you that I rode for this university for five years and got a brown. And what good did that do, pray? Well, it does say Arch-Chancellor on my door. Do you remember why? The University Council at the time took the very decent view that it might be the moment for a leader who was not stupid, mad, or dead. Admittedly, most of these are not exactly qualifications in the normal sense, but I like to think that the skill of leadership, tactics, and creative cheating that I learned on the river also stood me in good stead. And thus, for my sins, which I don't actually remember committing, but must have been quite crimson, I was at the top of a short list of one. Was that a choice of three cheeses, Mr. Stibbons? Yes, Arch-Chancellor. I was just checking. Ridcully leaned forward. Gentlemen, in the morning, correction, later this morning, I propose to tell Veterinary firmly that this university intends to once again play football. And the task falls to me because I am the first among equals. If any of you would like to try your luck in the Oblong office, you have only to say. He'll suspect something, you know, said the Chair of Indefinite Studies. He suspects everything. That's why he's still patrician. Ridcully stood up. I declare this meat, this overly extended snack, over. Mr. Stibbons, come with me. Ponder hurried after him, books clutched to his chest, happy for the excuse to get out of there before they turned on him. The bringer of bad news is never popular, especially when it's on an empty plate. Arch-Chancellor, I... he began, but Ridcully held his finger to his lips. After a moment of cloying silence, there was a sudden festival of scuffling, as of men fighting in silence. Good for them, Ridcully said, heading off down the corridor. I wondered how long it would take them to realise that they might be seeing the last overloaded snack trolley for some time. I am almost tempted to wait and see them waddle out with their robes sagging. Ponder stared at him. Are you enjoying this, Arch-Chancellor? "'Good heavens, no!' said Ridcully, his eyes sparkling. 
How could you suggest such a thing? Besides, in a few hours I have to tell Havelock Veterinari that we're intending to become a personal affront. The unschooled mob hacking at one another's legs is one thing. I don't believe he'll be happy with the prospect of our joining in. Uh, of course, sir. Um, there is a minor matter, sir, a small conundrum, if you will. Who is Nut? There seemed, to ponder, to be a rather longer pause than necessary before Ridcully said, Nuts would be... He works in the candle vat, sir. How do you know that, Stibbons? I do the wages, sir. The candle knave says Nut just turned up one night with a chitty saying he was to be employed and paid minimal wage. Well? That's all I know, sir, and I only found that out because I asked Speems. Speems said he's a good lad, but sort of odd. Then he should fit right in, don't you think, Stibbons? In fact, we are seeing how he fits in. Well, yes, sir, no problem there, but he's a goblin, apparently, and generally, you know, it's a sort of odd tradition, but when the first people from other races first come to the city, they start out in the watch. Ridcully cleared his throat loudly. The trouble with the watch, Stibbons, is that they ask too many questions. We should not emulate them, I suggest. He looked at Ponder and appeared to reach a decision. You know that you have a glowing future here at UU, Stibbons. Yes, sir, said Ponder gloomily. I would advise you, with this in mind, to forget all about Mr. Nutt. Excuse me, Arch-Chancellor, but that simply will not do. Ridcully swayed backwards, like a man subjected to an attack by a hitherto comatose sheep. Ponder plunged on, because when you have dived off a cliff, your only hope is to press for the abolition of gravity. I have twelve jobs in this university, he said. I do all the paperwork. I do all the adding up, in fact. I do everything that requires even a modicum of effort and responsibility. And I go on doing it, even though Brazenneck have offered me the post of bursar. With a staff. I mean real people, not a stick with a knob on the end. Now, will you trust me? What is it about Nut that is so important? The bastard tried to lure you away, said Ridcully. How sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless dean. Is there nothing he will not stoop to? How much did— I didn't ask, said Ponder quietly. There was a moment of silence, and then Ridcully patted him a couple of times on the shoulder. The problem with Mr. Nutt is that people want to kill him. What people? Ridcully stared into Ponder's eyes. His lips moved. He squinted up and down like a man engaged in complex calculation. He shrugged. Probably everybody, he said. Please have some more of my wonderful apple pie, said Nutt. But she gave it to you, said Trev, grinning. I'd never hear the end of it if I ate your pie. But you are my friend, Mr. Trev, said Nutt, and since it is my pie, I can decide what to do with it. Nah, said Trev, waving it away. But there is a little errand you can do for me, me being a kind and understanding boss what lets you work all the hours you want. Yes, Mr. Trev, said Nutt. Glenda will come in around midday. To be honest, she hardly ever leaves the place. I would like you to go and ask her the name of that girl who was up there tonight. The one who shouted at you, Mr. Trev? The very same, said Trev. Of course I will do that, said Nutt. But why don't you ask Miss Glenda yourself? She knows you. Trev grinned again. Yes, she does, and that's why I know she won't tell me. If I'm any judge, and I'm pretty sound, she would like to know you better. I've never met a lady so good at feeling sorry for people. There's not much of me to know, said Nutt. 
Trev gave him a long, thoughtful glance. Nutt had not taken his eyes off his work. Trev had never seen anyone who could be so easily engrossed. Other people who ended up working in the vats were a bit weird. It was almost a requirement, but the little dark grey fellow was somehow weird in the opposite direction. "'You know, you ought to get out more, Mr Nutts,' he said. "'Oh, I don't think I should like that at all,' said Nutts. "'And may I kindly remind you, my name is not plural, thank you. "'Have you ever seen a game of football?' "'No, Mr Trev.' "'Then I'll take you to the match tomorrow. "'I don't play, of course, but I never miss a game if I can help it,' said Trev. "'No edged weapons, probably. "'The season starts soon, everyone's warming up. "'Well, that is very kind of you, but I tell you what, "'I'll pick you up down here at one o'clock.' "'People will look at me,' said Nutt, and in his head he could hear Ladyship's voice, calm and cool as ever. "'Do not stand out. Be part of the crowd.' "'No, they won't. Trust me on that,' said Trev. "'I can sort that out. Enjoy your pie. I'm off.' He pulled a tin can out of his coat pocket, dropped it onto his foot, flicked it into the air, towed it a few times so it spun and twinkled like some celestial object, and then kicked it very hard so it sailed off down the huge gloomy room a few feet above the vats, rattling slightly. Against all probability, it stopped in its flight a few feet from the far wall, spun for a moment, and then started to come back with, it seemed to the amazed nut, a greater speed than before. Trev caught it effortlessly and dropped it back into his pocket. "'How can you do that, Mr. Trev?' said Nut, astonished. "'Never thought about it,' said Trev. "'But I always wonder why everyone else can't. "'It's just about the spinning. "'It's not hard. "'See you tomorrow, OK? "'And don't forget that name.' The horse buses were not much faster than walking, but it wasn't you doing the walking. And there were seats, and a roof, and a guard with a battle-axe, and all in all it was, in the damp grey hours before dawn, good value for tuppence. Glenda and Juliet sat side by side, rocking gently to the sway, lost in their thoughts. At least Glenda was. Juliet could get lost in half a thought, if that. But Glenda had become an expert at knowing when Juliet was going to speak. It was rather like the sense a sailor has that the wind is going to change. There were little signs, as if a thought had to get the beautiful brain warmed up and spinning before anything could happen. "'Who was that boy, what come up for his bubble and squeak?' she asked nonchalantly, or what she probably thought was nonchalantly, or again, what she might have thought was nonchalantly had she known that there was a word like nonchalantly. "'That's Trevor Likely,' said Glenda, "'and you don't want anything to do with him.' "'Why not?' He's a dimmer, fancies himself as a face, too, and his dad was Big Dave, likely. Your dad would go mad if he heard you'd even talked to him. He's got a lovely smile, said Juliet, with a wistfulness that rang all kinds of alarms for Glenda. He's a scallywag, she said firmly. He'll try on anything. Can't keep his hands to himself, too. How come you knows that, said Juliet. That was another worrying thing about Juliet. Nothing much seemed to be going on between those perfect ears for hours on end, and then a question like that would come spinning towards you with edges on it. "'You know, you should try to speak better,' Glenda said, to change the subject. "'With your looks you could snag a man who thinks about more than beer and footy. Just speak with a little more class, eh? You don't have to sound like—' "'My fair lady!' They looked up at the guard, who was holding his axe in a way that was very nearly not threatening. When it came to looking up, this was not a long way. The axe's owner was very short. Glenda pushed the weapon out of the way. "'Don't wave it about, Roger,' she sighed. "'It doesn't impress.' "'Oh, sorry, Miss Glenda,' said the dwarf, what was visible of his face behind the beard colouring with embarrassment. 
It's been a long shift. That'll be fourpence, ladies. Sorry about the axe, but we've been getting people jumping off without paying. He ought to be sent back to where he came from, muttered Juliet as the guard moved on along the bus. Glenda chose not to rise to this. As far as she'd been able to tell, up until today at least, her friend had no opinions of her own and simply echoed anything other people said to her. But then she couldn't resist. That would be Treacle Mine Road, then. He was born in the city. He's a miners' fan, then. I suppose it could be worse. I don't think dwarfs bother much about football, said Glenda. I don't think you can be a real Morporkian and not shout for your team, was the next piece of worn-out folk wisdom from Juliet. Glenda let this one pass. Sometimes arguing with her friend was like punching mist. Besides, the plodding horses were laboriously passing their street. They got off without missing a step. The door to Juliet's house was covered in the ancient remnants of multiple layers of paint, or rather multiple layers of paint that had bubbled up into tiny little mountains over the years. It was always the cheapest paint possible. After all, you could afford to buy beer or you could afford to buy paint, and you couldn't drink paint unless you were Mr. Johnson at number 14, who apparently drank it all the time. Now, I won't tell your dad that you were late, said Glenda, opening the door for her, but I want you in early tomorrow, all right? Yes, Glenda, said Juliet meekly, and no thinking about that Trevor Likely. Yes, Glenda. It was a meek reply, but Glenda recognised the sparkle. She'd seen it in the mirror once. But now she cooked an early breakfast for Widow Crowdy, who occupied the house on the other side and couldn't get about much these days, made her comfortable, did the chores in the rising light, and finally went to bed. Her last thought as she plummeted into sleep was, "'Don't goblins steal chickens?' "'Funny, he doesn't look the type.' At half-past eight, a neighbour woke her up by throwing gravel at her window. He wanted her to come and look at his father, described as poorly, and the day began. She had never needed to buy an alarm clock. Why did other people need so much sleep? It was a permanent puzzle for Nut. It got boring by himself. Back in the castle in Überwald, there had always been someone around to talk to. Ladyship liked the night-time and wouldn't go out in bright sunshine at all, so a lot of visitors came then. He had to stay out of sight, of course, but he knew all the passages in the walls and all the secret spy-holes. He saw the fine gentleman, always in black, and the dwarfs with iron armour that gleamed like gold. Later, down in his cellar that smelled of salt and thunderstorms, Igor showed him how it was made. There were trolls, too— looking a bit more polished than the ones he'd learned to run away from in the forests. He especially remembered the troll that shone like a jewel. Igor said his skin was made of living diamond. That alone would have been enough to glue him into Nut's memory, but there had been that moment, one day when the diamond troll was seated at the big table with other trolls and dwarfs, when the diamond eyes had looked up and had seen Nut looking through a tiny hidden spy hole at the other end of the room. Nut was convinced of it, He'd jerked away from the hole so quickly that he'd banged his head on the wall opposite. He'd grown to know his way around all the cellars and workshops in Ladyship's Castle. Go anywhere you wish. Talk to everyone. Ask any questions. You will be given answers. When you want to learn, you will be taught. Use the library. Open any book. Those had been good days. Everywhere he went, men stopped work to show him how to plane and carve and mould, and fettle, and smelt iron, and make horseshoes. But not how to fit them, because any horse went mad when he entered the stables. One once kicked the boards out of the rear wall. 
That particular afternoon he went up to the library, where Miss Heelstether found him a book on scent. He read it so fast that his eyes should have left trails on the paper. He certainly left a trail in the library. The twenty-two volumes of Breakfast's Compendium of Odours were soon stacked on the long lectern, followed by Spout's Trumpet of Equestrianism, and then, via a detour through the history section, Nut plunged into the folklore section, with Miss Heelstether pedalling after him on the mobile library steps. She watched him with a kind of gratified awe. He'd been barely able to read when he'd arrived, but the goblin boy had set out to improve his reading as a boxer trains for a fight, and he was fighting something, but she wasn't sure in her own mind what it was, and, of course, ladyship never explained. He would sit all night under the lamp, book of the moment in front of him, dictionary and thesaurus on either side, wringing the meaning out of every word, punching ceaselessly at his own ignorance. When she came in the next morning, there was a dictionary of dwarfish and a copy of Postulume's The Speech of Trolls on the lectern too. Surely it's not right to learn like this, she told herself. It can't be settling properly. You can't just fork it into your head. Learning has to be digested. You don't just have to know, you have to comprehend. She mentioned this to Fassel the smith, who said, "'Look, miss, he came up to me the other day "'and said he'd watched a smith before, and could he have a go? "'Well, you know her ladyship's orders, "'so I gave him a bit of bar stock and showed him the hammer and tongs, "'and next minute he was going at it like, well, hammer and tongs. "'Turned out a nice little knife, very nice indeed. "'He thinks about things. "'You can see his ugly little mush working it all out. "'Have you ever met a goblin before?' "'Strange you should ask,' she told him. Our catalogue says we've got one of the very few copies of J. P. Bunderbell's Five Hours and Sixteen Minutes Among the Goblins of Far Uberwelt, but I can't find it anywhere. It's priceless. Five hours and sixteen minutes doesn't sound very long, said the smith. You'd think so, wouldn't you? But according to a lecture Mr. Bunderbell gave to Sir Ankh-Morpork Trespasser Society, originally the Explorer's Society, until Lord Vetinari forcibly insisted that most of the places discovered by the Society's members already had people living in them who were already trying to sell snakes to the newcomers. It was about five hours too long. He said they ranged in size from unpleasantly large to disgustingly small, had about the same level of culture as yoghurt, and spent their time picking their own noses and missing. A complete waste of space, he said. It caused quite a stir. "'Anthropologists are not supposed to write that sort of thing. "'And young Nut is one of them?' "'Yes, that puzzled me, too. "'Did you see him yesterday? "'There's something about him that frightens horses. "'So he came to the library and found some old book about the horseman's word. "'They were a kind of secret society which knew how to make special oils "'that would make horses obey them. "'Then he spent the afternoon down in Igor's crypt, "'brewing up God's know-what, "'and this morning he was riding a horse around the yard.' It wasn't happy, mind you, but he was winning. I'm surprised his ugly little head doesn't explode, said Fassel. Ha! Miss Heelstether sounded bitter. Stand by, then, because he's discovered the Bianc school. What's that? Not that. Them. Philosophers. Well, I say philosophers, but, well... Oh, the mucky ones, said Fassel, cheerfully. I wouldn't say mucky, said Miss Heelstether. And this was true. A ladylike librarian would not employ that word in the presence of a smith, especially one who was grinning. Let's say indelicate, shall we? There is not a lot of call for delicacy on an anvil, so the smith continued unabashed. 
They are the ones who go on about what happens if ladies don't get enough mutton, and they say cigars are— That is a fallacy. That's right, that's what I read. The smith was clearly enjoying this. And ladyship lets him read this stuff? Indeed, she very nearly insists. I can't imagine what she's thinking. Or him come to that, she thought to herself. There was a limit to how many candles he should make, Trev had told Nutt. It looked bad if he made too many, Trev explained. The pointy hats might decide that they didn't need all the people. That made sense to Nutt. What would no face and concrete and weepy mucko do? They would have nowhere else to go. They had to live in a simple world. They, too, easily got knocked down by life in this one. He'd tried wandering around the other cellars, but there was nothing much happening at night, and people gave him funny looks. Ladyship did not rule here. But wizards are a messy lot, and nobody tidied up much and lived to tell the tale. So all sorts of old storerooms and junk-filled workshops became his for the use of, and there was so much for a lad with keen night vision to find. He had already seen some luminous spoon ants carrying a fork, and, to his surprise, the forgotten mazes were home to that very rare indorivore, the uncommon sock-eater. There were some things living up in the pipes, too, which periodically murmured, Hawk! Hawk! Who knew what strange monsters made their home here? He cleaned the pie plates very carefully indeed. Glenda had been kind to him. He must show that he was kind too. It was important to be kind, and he knew where to find some acid. Lord Vetinari's personal secretary stepped into the oblong office with barely a disturbance in the air. His lordship glanced up. Ah, Drumnot, I think I shall have to write to the Times again— I am certain that one down, six across, nine down, appeared in that same combination three months ago. On a Friday, I believe. He dropped the crossword page onto the desk with a look of disdain. So much for a free press. Well done, my lord. The Arch-Chancellor has just entered the palace. Vetinari smiled. He must have looked at the calendar at last. Thank goodness they have ponder stibbons. Show him straight in after the customary wait. Five minutes later, Mustram Ridcully was ushered in. Arch-Chancellor, to what urgent matter do I owe this visit? Our usual meeting is not until the day after tomorrow, I believe. Ah, uh, yes, said Ridcully. As he sat down, a very large sherry was placed in front of him. There are those who say that sherry should not be drunk early in the morning. They are wrong. Well, uh, Havelock, the fact of the matter is, but it is in fact Quite providential that you have arrived just now, Vetinari went on, ignoring him, because a problem has arisen on which I would like your advice. Oh, really? Yes, indeed. It concerns this wretched game called Foot the Ball. It does? The glass, now in Ridcully's hand, trembled not a fraction. He'd held his job for a long time, right back to the days when a wizard who blinked died. One has to move with the times, of course, said the patrician, shaking his head. Uh, we tend not to over the road, said Ridcully. It only encourages them. People do not understand the limits of tyranny, said Vetinari, as if talking to himself. They think that because I can do what I like, I can do what I like. A moment's thought reveals, of course, that this cannot be so. Oh, it's the same with magic, said the Arch-Chancellor. 
If you flash spells around like there's no tomorrow, there's a good chance that there won't be. In short, Vetinari continued, still talking to the air, I'm intending to give my blessing to the game of football in the hope that its excesses can be more carefully controlled. Well, it worked with the Thieves' Guild, Ridcully observed, amazed at his own calmness. If there has to be crime, then it should be organised. I think that's what he said. Exactly. I have to admit to the view that all exercise for any purpose other than bodily health, the defence of the realm, and the proper action of the bowels is barbaric. Really? What about agriculture? Defence of the realm against starvation. But I see no point in people just running about. Did you catch your megapode, by the way? How the hells does he do it? Ridcully wondered. I mean, how? Aloud, he said. Indeed we did, but surely you are not suggesting that we were merely running about? Of course not. All three exceptions apply. Tradition is at least as important as bowels, if not quite so useful. And indeed, the poor boy's fun has some remarkable traditions of its own, which some might find it worthwhile exploring. Let me be frank, Mustrum. I cannot enforce a mere personal dislike against public pressure. Well, I can, strictly speaking, but not without going to ridiculous and, indeed, tyrannical lengths. Over a game? I think not. So, as things stand, we find teams of burly men pushing and shoving and kicking and biting, in the faint hope, it seems to me, of propelling some wretched object at some distant goal. I have no problem with them trying to kill one another, which has little in the way of a downside, but it has now become so popular once more that property is being damaged, and that cannot be tolerated. There have been comments in the Times. No, what the wise man cannot change he must channel. And how do you intend to do that? By giving the job to you. Unseen University has always had a fine sporting tradition. Had is the right word, sighed Ridcully. In my day we were all so, so relentlessly physical. But if I was to suggest so much as an egg and spoon race these days, they'd use the spoon to eat the egg. Alas, I did not know your day was over, Mustrum, said Lord Vetinari with a smile. The room, never normally noisy, sank into deeper silence. Now look here, Ridcully began. This afternoon I shall be speaking to the editor of the Times, said Vetinari, gently surfing his voice over that of the wizard with all the skill of a born committee manipulator, who is, as we know, a very civic-minded person. I'm sure he will welcome the fact that I'm asking the university to tame the demon foot the ball, and that you have, after careful thought, agreed to the task. I don't have to do this, Ridcully thought carefully. On the other hand, since it is what I want, and thereby don't have to ask for, this may be unwise. Damn, this is so like him. Uh, you would not object if we raise our own team, he managed. Indeed, I positively demand that you do so. But no magic, Mustrum. I must make that clear. Magic is not sporting, unless you are playing against other wizards, of course. Oh, I'm a very sporting man, Havelock. Capital. How is the dean settling in at Brazeneck, by the way? 
If it had been anyone else asking, Ridcully thought, that would simply be a polite inquiry. But this is veterinary, isn't it? I've been too busy to find out, he said loftily, but I'm sure he'll be fine when he finds his feet, or manages to see them without a mirror, he added to himself. I'm sure you must be pleased to see your old friend and colleague making his way in the world, said Vetinari innocently. And so is Pseudopolis itself, of course. I must say, I admire the sturdy burghers of that city for embarking on their noble experiments in this... this democracy, he went on. It is always good to see it attempted again, and sometimes amusing, too. There is something to be said for it, you know, grunted Ridcully. Yes, I believe you practice it at the university, said the patrician with a little smile. However, on the matter of football we are in accord, capital. I will tell Mr. De Word what you are doing. I'm sure that the keen players of foot the ball will be interested when someone explains the long words to them. Well done. Do try the sherry. I'm told it's highly palatable. Vetinari stood up, a signal that, in theory at least, the business of the meeting was concluded, and strolled over to a polished stone slab set into a square wooden table. On a different note, Mustrum, how is your young visitor? My visit? Oh, you mean the, uh, um... That's right. Vetinari smiled at the slab as if sharing a joke with it. The, as you put it, ah. Uh, I note the sarcasm. As a wizard, I must tell you that words have power. As a politician, I must tell you I already know. How is he getting along? Concerned minds would like to know. Ridcully glanced at the little carved men on the playing slab as if they were listening to him. In a roundabout way, they probably were. Certainly, it was well known now that the hands that guided half the pieces lived in a big castle in Uberwald and were female and belonged to a lady who was mostly rumour. Smeem says he keeps himself to himself. He says he thinks the boy is cunning. Oh, good, said Vetinari, still seeming to find something totally engrossing in the layout of playing pieces. Good? We need cunning people in Ankh-Morpork. We have a street of cunning artificers, do we not? Well, yes, but... Ah, then it is context that has power, said Vetinari, turning around with a look of unmasked delight. Did I say that I am a politician? Cunning, artful, sly, deceptive, shrewd, astute, cute, on the ball, and indeed arch. A word for any praise and every prejudice. Cunning is a cunning word. You don't think that maybe this... "'Experiment of yours might be a step too far,' said Ridcully. "'People said that about the vampires, did they not? "'It's alleged that they have no proper language, "'but I am told he speaks several languages fluently.' "'Smeems did say he talked lardy-dar,' Ridcully admitted. "'Mustrum, compared with natural Smeems, trolls speak lardy-dar. "'The, uh, boy was brought up by a priest of some sort, I know that,' said Ridcully. But what will he become when he grows up? By the sound of him, a professor of linguistics. You know what I mean, Havelock. Possibly, although I wonder if you do. But he is, I suggest, unlikely to become a ravening horde all by himself. Ridcully sighed. He glanced towards the game again, and Vetinari noticed. Look at them. Ranks, files, he said, waving a hand over the little stone figures, 
locked in everlasting conflict at the whim of the player. They fight, they fall, and they cannot turn back because the whips drive them on, and all they know is whips, kill or be killed. Darkness in front of them, darkness behind them, darkness and whips in their heads. But what if you could take one out of this game? Get him before the whips do. Take him to a place without whips. What might he become? One creature, one singular being. Would you deny them that chance? You had three men hanged last week, said Ridcully, without quite understanding why. They had their chances. They used them to kill and worse. All we get is a chance. We don't get a benison. He was chained to an anvil for seven years. He should get his chance, don't you think? Suddenly, Vetinari was smiling again. Let us not get sombre, however. I look forward to your ushering in a new era of lively, healthy activity in the best sporting tradition. Indeed, tradition will be your friend here, I am sure. Please don't let me trespass any further on your time. Ridcully drained the sherry. That, at least, was palatable. It's a short walk from the palace to Unseen University. Positions of power like to keep an eye on one another. Ridcully walked back through the crowds, occasionally nodding at people he knew, which, in this part of the city, was practically everyone. Trolls, he thought. We get along with trolls, now that they remember to look where they're putting their feet. Got them in the watch and everything. Jolly decent types bar a few bad apples, and gods know we have enough of those of our own. Dwarfs? Been here for ages. Can be a bit tricky. Can be as tight as a duck's ass. Here he paused to think and edited that thought to drive a hard bargain. You always know where you are with them anyway. And, of course, they're short, which is always a comfort, providing you know that what they're doing down there. Vampires? Well, the Ubervalt League of Temperance seemed to be working. Word on the street, or, or in a vault or whatever, was that they policed their own. Any unreformed bloodsucker who tried to make a killing in the city would be hunted down by people who knew exactly how they thought and where they hung out. Lady Margolotta was behind all that. She was the person who, by diplomacy and probably more direct means, had got things moving again in Ubervalt, and she had some sort of relationship with Vetinari. Everyone knew it, and that was all everyone knew, a dot-dot-dot relationship, one of those, and nobody had been able to join up the dots. She had been to the city on diplomatic visits, and not even the well-practised dowagers of Ankh-Morpork had been able to detect a whisper of anything other than a business-like amiability and international cooperation between the two of them. And he played endless and complex games with her via the clax system, and apart from that, that was, well, that, until now. And she'd sent him this nut to keep safe. Who knew why, apart from them? Politics, probably. Ridcully sighed. One of the monsters, all alone. It was hard to think of it. They came in thousands like lice, killing everything and eating the dead, including theirs. The evil empire had bred them in huge cellars, grey demons without a hell. The gods alone knew what had happened to them when the empire collapsed, but there was convincing evidence now that some still lived up in the far hills. What might they do? and one, right now, was making candles in Ridcully's cellars. What might he become? A bloody nuisance, said Ridcully aloud. Here, 
"'Who are you calling a nuisance, mister? It's my road, same as yours.' The wizard looked down at a young man who appeared to have stolen his clothes only from the best washing lines, though the tattered black and red scarf around his neck was probably his own. There was an edginess to him, a continual shifting of weight as though he might at any moment run off in a previously unguessable direction. And he was throwing a tin can up in the air and catching it again. For Ridcully, it brought back memories so sharp that they stung, but he pulled himself together. "'I am Mustrum Ridcully, Arch-Chancellor and Master of Unseen University, young man, "'and I see you are sporting colours. "'For some game, a game of football, I suggest?' "'As it happens, yes, so what?' said the urchin, "'then realised that his hand was empty when it should now, under normal gravitational rules, be full again. "'The tin had not fallen back from its last ascent, "'and was in fact turning gently twenty feet up in the air. "'Childish of me, I know,' said Ridcully. "'but I did want your full attention. "'I want to witness a game of football.' "'Witness? Look, I never saw nothing,' Ridcully sighed. "'I mean, I want to watch a game, OK? Today, if possible.' "'You? Are you sure? It's your funeral, mister. Got a shilling?' "'There was a clink high above. "'The tin will come back down with a sixpence in it. "'Time and place, please.' "'How do I know I can trust you?' said the urchin. "'I don't know,' said Ridcully. The subtle workings of the brain are a mystery to me, too, but I'm glad that is your belief. What? With a shrug, the boy decided to gamble, what with having had no breakfast. Loop Alley, off the scars, up asked one, and i never seen it before in my life, got it? That is quite probable, said Ridcully, and snapped his fingers. The tin dropped into the urchin's waiting hand. He shook out the silver coin and grinned. Best of luck to you, Guff. "'Is there anything to eat at these affairs?' said Ridcully, for whom lunchtime was a sacrament. "'There's pies, Guff. Peas pudding, jelly deal pies, pie and mash, lobster pies, but mostly they're just pies. Just pies, sir. Made of pie. What kind?' His informant looked shocked. "'They're pies, Guff. You don't ask.' Ridcully nodded. "'And as a final transaction, I'll pay you one penny for a kick of your can.' Tuppence, said the boy promptly. "'You little scamp, we have a deal.' Ridcully dropped the can on the toe of his boot, balanced it for a moment, then flicked it into the air, and, as it came down, hit it with a roundhouse kick that sent it spinning over the crowd. "'Not bad, Grandad,' said the kid, grinning. In the distance there was a yell and the sound of someone bent on retribution. Ridcully plunged a hand into his pocket and looked down. Two dollars to start running, kid. You won't get a better deal today.' The boy laughed, grabbed the coins, and ran. Ridcully walked on sedately while the years fell back on him like snow. He found Ponder Stibbons pinning up a notice on the board just outside the great hall. He did this quite a lot. Ridcully assumed it made him feel better in some way. He slapped Ponder on the back, causing him to spill drawing pins all over the flagstones. "'It is a bulletin from the Ank Committee on Safety, Arch-Chancellor,' said Ponder, scrabbling for the spinning wayward pins. "'This is a University of Magic, Stibbons.' We have no business with safety. Just being a wizard is unsafe, and so it should be. Yes, Arch-Chancellor. But I should pick up all those pins if I were you. You can't be too careful. Tell me, didn't we used to have a sportsmaster here? Yes, sir. Evans the Striped. He vanished about forty years ago, I believe. Killed? It was dead men's shoes in those days, you know. I can't imagine who would want his job. Apparently he evaporated while doing press-ups in the Great Hall one day.
Evaporated? What kind of death is that for a wizard? Any wizard would die of shame if he just evaporated. We always leave something behind, even if it's only smoke. Oh, well. Cometh the hour, cometh the, uh, whatever. General comethness, perhaps. What is that thinking engine of yours doing these days? Ponder brightened. As a matter of fact, Arch-Chancellor, Hex has just discovered a new particle. It travels faster than light in two directions at once. Can we make it do anything interesting? Well, yes, it totally explodes. Spallwittle's transcongruency theory. Good, said Ridcully cheerfully. Just so long as something explodes. Since it's finished exploding, set it to finding either Evans or a decent substitute. Sports masters are pretty elementary particles, it shouldn't be difficult. And call a meeting of the council in ten minutes. We are going to play football. Truth is female, since truth is beauty rather than handsomeness. This, Ridcully reflected as the council grumbled in, would certainly explain the saying that a lie could run round the world before truth has got its, correction, her, boots on, since she would have to choose which pair. The idea that any woman in a position to choose would have just one pair of boots being beyond rational belief. Indeed, as a goddess, she would have lots of shoes, and thus many choices. Comfy shoes for home truths, hobnail boots for unpleasant truths, simple clogs for universal truths, and possibly some kind of slipper for self-evident truth. More important right now was what kind of truth he was going to have to impart to his colleagues, and he decided not on the whole truth, but instead on nothing but the truth, which dispensed with the need for honesty. Well, go on then, what did he say? He responded to reasoned argument. He did. Where's the catch? None, but he wants the rules to be more traditional. Surely not. I gather they're practically prehistoric as it is. And he wants the university to take the lead in all this, and quickly. Gentlemen, there is a game going to be played in about three hours' time. I suggest we observe it. And to this end, I will require you to wear trousers. After a while, Ridcully took out his watch, which was one of the old-fashioned imp-driven ones, and was reliably inaccurate. He flipped up the gold lid and stared patiently as the little creature peddled the hands around. When the expostulating had not stopped after a minute and a half, he snapped the lid shut. The click had an effect that no amount of extra shouting could have achieved. Gentlemen, he said gravely, we must partake of the game of the people, from whom, I might add, we derive. Has any of us, in the last few decades, even seen the game being played? I thought not. We should get outside more. Now, I'm not asking you to do this for me, or even for the hundreds of people who work to provide us with a life in which discomfort so seldom rears its head. Yes, many other ugly heads have reared, it is true, but dinner has always beckoned. We are, fellow wizards, the city's last line of defence against all the horrors that can be thrown against it. However, none of them are as potentially dangerous as us. Yes, indeed. I don't know what might happen if wizards were really hungry. So, do this, I implore you, on this one occasion for the sake of the cheese board. There had been some nobler calls to arms in history, Ridcully would be the first to admit, but this one was well tailored to its target audience. There was some grumbling, but that was the same as saying the sky was blue. What about lunch? said the lecturer in recent rooms, suspiciously. We'll eat early, said Ridcully and I am told that the pies at the game are just... amazing. Truth, 
in front of her huge walk-in wardrobe, selected black leather boots with stiletto heels for such a bare-faced truth. Nutt was already waiting with a proud but worried look on his face when Glenda got into the night's kitchen. She didn't notice him at first, but she turned back from hanging her coat on its peg, and there he was, holding a couple of dishes in front of him like shields. She almost had to shade her eyes because they gleamed so brightly. "'I hope this is all right,' said Nutt nervously. "'What have you done?' "'I plated them with silver, miss.' "'How did you do that?' "'Oh, there's all kinds of old stuff in the cellars, and, well, I know how to do things.' "'It won't cause trouble for anyone, will it?' Nutt added, looking suddenly anxious. Glenda wondered if it would. It shouldn't, but you could never be sure with Mrs. Wicklow. Well, she could solve that problem by hiding them somewhere until they tarnished. It's kind of you to take the trouble. I generally have to chase people to get plates back. You are a real gentleman, she said, and his face lit up like a sunrise. You are very kind, he beamed, and a very handsome lady with your two enormous chests that indicates bountifulness and fecundity. The morning air froze in one enormous block. He could tell he'd said something wrong, but he had no idea what it was. Glenda looked around to see if anyone had heard, but the huge, gloomy room was otherwise empty. She was always the first one in and the last one out. But then she said, "'Stay right there. Don't you dare move an inch, not an inch, and don't steal any chickens,' she commanded as an afterthought. She should have trailed steam as she headed out of the room, her boots echoing on the flagstones. What a thing to come out with! Who did he think he was? Come to that, who did she think he was? And what did she think he was? The cellars and undercrofts of the university were a small city in themselves, and bakers and butchers turned to look as she clattered past. She didn't dare stop now, it would be too embarrassing. If you knew all the passages and stairs, and if they stayed still for five minutes— it was possible to get to just about anywhere in the university without going above ground. Probably none of the wizards knew the maze. Not many of them cared to know the dull details of domestic management. <laughs> they thought the dinners turned up by magic. A small set of stone steps led up to the little door. Hardly anyone used it these days. The other girls wouldn't go in there, but Glenda would. Even after the very first time that she had, in response to the bell, delivered the midnight banana— or rather, had failed to deliver it on account of running away screaming, she knew she'd have to face it again. After all, we can't help how we're made, her mother had said, and nor can we help what a magical accident might turn us into through no fault of our own, as Mrs. Whitlow had explained slightly more recently, when the screaming had stopped. And so Glenda had picked up the banana and had headed right back there. Now, of course, she was surprised that anyone might find it odd that the custodian of all the knowledge that could be was a reddish-brown and generally hung several feet above his desk, and she was pretty certain that she knew at least fourteen meanings of the word ook. As it was daytime, the huge building beyond the little door was bustling, insofar as the word can be applied to a library. She headed towards the nearest lesser librarian, who failed to look the other way in time, and demanded— I need to see a dictionary of embarrassing words beginning with F. His haughty glance softened somewhat when he realised she was a cook. Wizards always had a place in their hearts for cooks, because it was near their stomach. Ah, then I think Birdcatcher's discomforting misusage will be our friend here, he said cheerfully, and led her to a lectern, where she spent several enlightening minutes before heading back the way she'd come, a little wiser and a great deal more embarrassed. 
Nut was still standing where she'd told him to stand and looked terrified. "'I'm sorry I didn't know what you meant,' she said, and thought, abundant, productive, and fruitful. "'Well, yes, I can see how he got there, worse luck, but that's not me, not really me, I think. I hope. "'Um, it was kind of you to say that about me,' she said, "'but you should have used more appropriate language.' "'Ah, yes, I'm so sorry,' said Nut. "'Mr. Trev told me about this. I should not talk posh. "'I should have said that you have enormous tick. "'Just stop there, will you?' "'Trevor Lightly is teaching you elocution?' "'Don't tell me. I know this one. "'You mean talking proper?' said Nut. "'Yes, and he's promised to take me to the football,' he added proudly. "'This led to some explanation which only made Glenda gloomy. "'Trev was right, of course. "'People who didn't know long words tended to be edgy around people who did. "'That's why her male neighbours, like Mr. Stollop and his mates, "'distrusted nearly everybody.' Their wives, on the other hand, shared a much larger, if somewhat specialised, vocabulary owing to the cheap romantic novels that passed like contraband from scullery to washhouse in every street. That's why Glenda knew elocution, torrid, boudoir and reticule, although she wasn't too certain about reticule and boudoir and avoided using them, which, in the general scheme of things, was not hard. She was deeply suspicious about what a lady's boudoir might be and certainly wasn't going to ask anybody even in the library, just in case they laughed. "'And he's going to take you to the football, is he? Mr. Nutt, you will stand out like a diamond in a sweep's ear-hole. Do not stand out from the crowd. There were so many things to remember.' "'He says he will look after me,' said Nutt, hanging his head. "'Um, I was wondering who that nice young lady was who was in here last night,' he added desperately, as transparent as air. "'He asked you to ask me, right?' "'Lie. Stay safe.' But ladyship wasn't here, and the nice apple pie lady was right here in front of him. It was too complicated. Yes, he said meekly, and Glenda surprised herself. Her name is Juliet, and she lives bang next door to me, so he'd better not come round, OK? Juliet Stollop. See if he likes that. You fear he will press his suit? Her dad'll press a lot more than that if he sees he's a dimmer supporter. Nut looked blank, so she went on. "'Don't you know anything? Dimwell Old Pals, the football team. "'The Dollies are Dolly Sisters Football Club. "'Dollies hate the Dimmers. The Dimmers hate the Dollies. "'It's always been like that. "'What could have caused such a difference between them?' "'What? There is no difference between them, "'not when you've got past the colours. "'They're two teams alike in villainy. "'Dolly Sisters wears white and black. "'Dimwell wears pink and green. "'It's all about football. "'Bloody, bloody, clogging, hacking, punching, "'gouging, silly football.' The bitterness in Glenda's voice would have soured cream. But you have a Dolly sister scarf. When you live there, it's safer that way. Anyway, you have to support your own. But is it not a game like Spillikins or Halmer or Thud? No, it's more like war, but without the kindness and consideration. Oh, dear. But war is not kind, is it? said Nut, bewilderment, clouding his face. No. Oh, I see you being ironic. She gave him a sideways look. "'I might have been,' she conceded. "'You are an odd one, Mr. Nutt. "'Where are you from, really?' "'The old panic contained again. "'Be harmless, be helpful, make friends, lie. "'But how did you lie to friends?' "'I must go,' he said, scurrying down the stone steps. "'Mr. Trev will be waiting.' "'Nice but odd,' Glenda thought, watching him leap down the steps. "'Clever, too, to spot my scarf on a hook ten yards away.' 
The sound of a rattling tin can alerted Nut to his boss's presence before he'd even hurried through the old archway to the vats. The other habitués had paused in their work, which, frankly, given its usual snail-like progress, meant hardly any change at all, and were watching him listlessly. But they were watching, at least. Even concrete looked vaguely alert, but Nut saw a little dribble of brown in the corner of his mouth. Someone had been giving him iron filings again. The can shot up as Trev caught it with his boot, flew over his head, and then came back obliquely, as if rolling down an invisible slope, and landed in his waiting hand. There was a murmur of appreciation from the watchers, and Concrete banged his hand on the table, which generally meant approval. "'What kept you, Gobbo? Chatting up Glenda, were you? You've got no chance there, take it from me. Been there, tried that, oh yeah. No chance, mate.' He threw a grubby bag towards Nut. "'Get these on quick, else you'll stand out like a diamond in—' "'A sweep's ear-hole?' Nut suggested. "'Yeah, you're getting it. Now don't hang about or we'll be late.' Nut looked doubtfully at a long— a very long scarf in pink and green, and a large yellow woolly hat with a pink bobble on it. "'Pull it down hard so it covers your ears,' Trev commanded. "'Get a move on.' "'Er, uh, pink,' said Nut doubtfully, holding up the scarf. "'What about it?' "'Well, isn't football a rough man's game, whereas pink, if you'll excuse me, is rather a female colour? Trev grinned. "'Yeah, that's right. Think about it. You are the clever one round here.' And you can walk and think at the same time, I know that. Makes you stand out from the crowd in these parts. Ah, I think I have it. The pink proclaims an almost belligerent masculinity, saying, as it does, I am so masculine I can afford to tempt you to question it, giving me the opportunity to proclaim it anew by doing violence to you in response. I don't know if you have ever read Offelberger's Die Wesentlichen Ungewissheiten Zugehörig der Offenkundigen Männlichkeit. Trev grabbed his shoulder and spun him round. "'What do you think, Gobbo?' he said, his red face a couple of inches from nuts. "'What is your problem? What are you all about? You come out with ten-dollar words and you lay them down like a man doing a jigsaw. So how come you're down in the vats, eh, working for someone like me? It don't make sense. Are you on the run from the old Sam? No problem there unless you did up an old lady or something, but you've got to tell me.' Too dangerous, thought Nut desperately. Changed the subject. "'She's called Juliet,' he gasped. "'The girl you asked about. "'She lives next door to Glenda, honestly.' "'Trev looked suspicious. "'Glenda told you that?' "'Yes. "'She was winding you up. "'She knew you'd tell me. "'I don't think she would lie to me, Mr. Trev. "'She is my friend.' "'I kept thinking about her all last night,' said Trev. "'Well, she is a wonderful cook,' Nut agreed. "'I meant Juliet.' "'Um, and Glenda said to tell you "'that Juliet's other name is Stollop,' said Nut, "'hating to be the bearer of worse news.' "'What? That girl is a stollop?' "'Yes. Glenda said I was to see how you liked that, but I know the meaning of irony.' "'Bah! It's like finding a strawberry in a dog-meat stew, yeah? I mean, the stollops are buggers, the lot of them. Biters and cloggers to a man, the kind of bastards who kick your family jewels up in your throat.' "'But you don't play football, do you? You just watch.' "'Damn right, but I'm a face, right? I'm known in all the boroughs. You can ask anyone. Everyone knows Trev Likely.' I'm Dave Likely's lad. Every supporter in the city knows about him. Four goals. No one else scored that much in a lifetime. And gave as good as he got, did Dad. One game, he picked up the dolly bastard holding the ball and threw him over the line. He gave as good as he got, my Dad, and then some. So, he was a bugger and a clogger and a biter too, was he? What? Are you pulling my tonka? I would not wish to do so initially, Mr Trev, said Nut, so solemnly that Trev had to grin. But... 
You see, if he fought the opposing team with even more force than they used, does that not mean that he... He was my dad, said Trev. That means you don't try any fancy maths. OK. OK, indeed. And you never wanted to follow in his footsteps? What? And get brung home on a stretcher? I got my brains from my old mum, not from my dad. He was a good bloke and loved his football, but he wasn't flush with brains to start with, and on that day some of them were leaking out of his ear. The dollies got him in the melee and sorted him out good and proper. That's not for me, Gobbo. I'm smart. Yes, Mr Trev, I can see that. Get the gear on. Let's go, OK? We don't want to miss anything. Fing, said Nut automatically, as he started to wind the huge scarf around his neck. What? said Trev, frowning. What? said Nut, his voice a little muffled. There was a lot of scarf. It was almost covering his mouth. "'Are you pulling my chuff, Gobbo?' said Trev, handing him an ancient sweater, faded and saggy with age. "'Please, Mr Trev, I don't know. There appears to be so much I might inadvertently pull.' He tugged on the big woolly hat with a pink pom-pom on it. "'They are so very pink, Mr Trev. We must be bursting with machismo.' "'I don't know what you personally are bursting with, Gobbo, but here's something to learn.' "'Come on, if you think you're hard enough.' Now you say it. Come on, if you think you're hard enough, said Nut obediently. Well, OK, said Trev, inspecting him. Just remember, if anyone starts pushing you around during the game and giving you grief, just you say that to them and they'll see you're wearing a dimmer colours and they'll think twice, got it? Nut, somewhere in the space between the big bobbly hat and the boa constrictor of a scarf, nodded. Wow, there you are, Gobbo, a complete fan. Your own mother wouldn't recognise you. There was a pause before a voice emerged from inside the mound of ancient woollens, which looked very much like a nursery layette made by a couple of giants who weren't sure what to expect. I believe you are accurate. Yeah? Well, that's good, innit? Now let's go and meet the lads. Move fast, stay close. Now remember, this is a pre-season friendly between the angels and the whoppers, right? said Trev as they stepped out into a fine rain, which, because of Ankh-Morpork's standing cloud of pollution, was morphing gently into smog. They're both pretty crap, they'll never amount to anything, but the dimmers shout for the angels, right? It took some explaining, but the core of it, as far as Nut could understand it, was this. All football teams in the city were rated by Dimwell in proportion to their closeness, physical, psychological or general gut feeling, to the hated Dolly sisters. It had just evolved that way. If you went to a match between two other teams, you automatically, according to some complex and ever-changing ready reckoner of love and hate, cheered the team most nearly allied to your native turf, or, more accurately, cobbles. "'Do you see what I mean?' Trev finished. "'I have committed what you said to memory, Mr Trev.' "'Oh, brother, and I bet you have at that. "'And it's just Trev when we're not at work, right? "'We shout together, right?' He punched Nut playfully on the arm. "'Why did you do that, Mr Trev?' said Nut. His eyes, almost the only part of Invisible, looked hurt. "'You struck me.' That wasn't me hitting you, Gobbo. That was just a friendly punch. Big difference. Don't you know that? It's a little tap on the arm to show we're mates. Go on, do it to me. Go on. Trev winked. You will be polite, and most of all, you will never raise your hand in anger to anyone. But this wasn't like that, was it? Nut asked himself. Trev was his friend. This was friendly. A friend thing. He punched the friendly arm. That was a punch? said Trev. You call that a punch? A girl could punch better than that. How come you're still alive with a weedy punch like that? Go on, try a proper punch. Nut did. Be one of the crowd. It went against everything a wizard stood for, and a wizard would not stand for anything if he could sit down for it. 
but even sitting down you had to stand out. There were, of course, times when a robe got in the way, especially when a wizard was working in his forge, creating a magic metal or mobiloid glass or any of those other little exercises in practical magic where not setting fire to yourself is a happy bonus. So every wizard had some leather trousers and a stained, rotted-by-acid shirt. It was the shared, dirty little secret, not very secret, but ingrained with deep-down dirt. Ridcully sighed. His colleagues had aimed for the look of the common man, but had only a hazy grasp of what the common man looks like these days. And now they were sniggering and looking at one another and saying things like, "'Core blimey, don't you scrub down well, as it were, my old mate!' Beside them, and looking extremely embarrassed, were two of the university's bledlows, not knowing what to do with their feet and wishing that they were having a quiet smoke somewhere in the warm. "'Gentlemen!' Ridcully began, and then, with a gleam in his eye, added, "'Or, should I say, fellow workers by hand and brain, "'this afternoon we—' "'Yes, senior wrangler.' "'Are we, in point of fact, workers? "'This is a university, after all,' said the senior wrangler. "'I agree with the senior wrangler,' said the lecturer in recent runes. "'Under university statute, we are specifically forbidden to engage, "'other than within college precincts, in any magic above level four, "'unless specifically asked to do so by the civil power, "'or under clause three, we really want to.' We are acting as placeholders and, as such, forbidden from working. Would you accept slackers by hand and brain, said Ridcully, always happy to see how far he could go. Slackers by hand and brain by statute, said the senior wrangler, primly. Ridcully gave up. He could do this all day, but life couldn't be all fun. That being settled, then, I must tell you that I have asked the stalwart Mr. Frankly Ottomy and Mr. Alf Nobbs to join us in this little escapade. Mr. Nobbs says that since we are not wearing football favours, we should not attract unwanted attention. The wizards nodded nervously at the Bledlows. They were, of course, merely employees of the university, while the wizards were, well, were the university, weren't they? After all, a university was not just about bricks and mortar. It was about people, specifically wizards. But to a man, the Bledlows scared them. They were all hefty men, with the look of having been carved out of bacon, and they were all descendants of, and practically identical to, those men who had chased those wizards, younger and more limber, and it was amazing how fast you could run with a couple of bledlows behind you through the foggy nighttime streets. If caught, said bledlows, who took enormous pleasure in the prosecution of the university's private laws and idiosyncratic rules, would then drag you before the arch-chancellor on a charge of attempting to become rascally drunk. That was preferable to fighting back, when the Bledlows were widely believed to take the opportunity for a little class warfare. That was years ago, but even now the unexpected sight of a Bledlow caused sullen, shameful terror to flow down the spines of men who had acquired more letters after their names than a game of Scrabble. Mr. Ottomy, recognising this, leered and touched the brim of his uniform cap. "'Afternoon, gents,' he said. "'Don't you worry about a thing. "'Me and Elf here will see you rate. "'We'd better get moving, though. "'They bully off in half an hour.' "'The senior wrangler would not have been the senior wrangler "'if he did not hate the sound of silence. "'As they shuffled out the back door, "'wincing at the unfamiliar chafing of trouser upon knee, "'he turned to Mr. Nobbs and said, "'Nobbs, that's not a common name. "'Tell me, Alf.' "'Are you by any chance related to the famous Corporal Nobby Nobbs, the watch?' "'Mr. Nobbs took it well,' Ridcully thought, given the clumsy lack of protocol. "'No, sir!' 
Ah, a distant branch of the name, then. No, sir, different tree. In the greyness of her front room, Glenda looked at the suitcase and despaired. She'd done her best with brown boot polish week after week, but it had been bought from a shonky shop, and the cardboard under the leatherish exterior was beginning to show through. Her customers never seemed to notice, but she did, even when it was out of sight. It was a secret part of a secret life that she lived for an hour or two on her half-day off once a week, and maybe a little longer if today's cold calls worked out. She looked at her face in the mirror and said, in a voice that was full of jaunt, "'We all know the problem of underarm defoliation. "'It is so hard, isn't it, to keep the lichens healthy. "'But,' she flourished, a green and blue container with a golden stopper, "'one spray with verdant spring will keep those crevices moist and forest fresh all day long.' She faltered, because it really wasn't her. She couldn't do jaunty. The stuff was a dollar a bottle. Who could afford that? Well, a lot of troll ladies, that's who, but Mr. Strong in the arm said it was OK because they had the money, and anyway, it did let the moss grow. She'd said all right, but a dollar for a fancy bottle of water with some plant food in it was a bit steep, and he'd said, you are selling the dream. And they bought it. That was the worrying part. They bought it and recommended it to their friends. The city had discovered the heavy dollar now. She'd read about it in the paper. There had always been trolls around doing the heavy lifting and generally being there in the background, if not being the actual background itself. But now they were raising families and running businesses, moving on and up and buying things, and that made them people at last. And so you got other people, like Mr Strong in the Arm, a dwarf, selling beauty products to Miss and Mrs Troll via ladies like Glenda, a human, because although dwarfs and trolls were officially great chums these days, because of something called the Coombe Valley Accord, that sort of thing only meant much to the sort of people who signed treaties. Even the most well-intentioned dwarf would not walk down some of the roads along which Glenda, every week, dragged her nasty, semi-cardboard case, selling the dream. It got her out of the house and paid for the little treats. There was money to put away for a rainy day. Mr Strong in the arm had the knack of coming up with new ideas, too. Who would have thought that Lady Trolls would go for fake tan lotion? It sold. Everything sold. The dream sold. And it was shallow and expensive and made her feel cheap. It... Her ever-straining ears caught the sound of next door's front door opening very slowly. Ha! Juliet jumped as Glenda suddenly loomed beside her. Off somewhere? Gonna watch the game, ain't I? Glenda glanced up the street. A figure was disappearing rapidly around the corner. She grinned, a grim grin. Oh, yes, good idea. I wasn't doing anything. Just wait while I fetch my scarf, will you? To herself, she added, you just keep walking, Johnny. With a thump that caused pigeons to explode away like a detonating daisy, the librarian landed on his chosen rooftop. He liked football. Something about the shouting and the fighting appealed to his ancestral memories. And this was fascinating because, strictly speaking, his ancestors had been blamelessly engaged for centuries as upstanding corn and feed merchants, and, moreover, were allergic to heights. He sat down on the parapet with his feet over the edge, and his nostrils flared as he snuffed up the scents rising from below. It is said that the onlooker sees most of the game but the librarian could smell as well, and the game, seen from outside, was humanity. Not a day went past without his thanking the magical accident that had moved him a few little genes away from it. 
apes had it worked out. No ape would philosophize. The mountain is and is not. They would think the banana is. I will eat the banana. There is no banana. I want another banana. He peeled one now in a preoccupied way while watching the evolving tableau below. Not only does said onlooker see most of the game, he might even see more than one game. This street was indeed a crescent, which would probably have an effect on tactics if the players had any truck with such high-flown concepts. People were pouring in from either end and also from a couple of alleyways. Mostly they were male, extremely so. The women fell into two categories: those who had been tugged there by the ties of blood or prospective matrimony. After which they could stop pretending that this bloody mess was in any way engrossing, and a number of elderly women of a sweet old lady construction who bawled indiscriminately in a rising cloud of lavender and peppermint screams of "Get him down and kick him in the nuts" and similar exhortations. And there was another smell now, one he'd learned to recognise but could not quite fathom. It was the smell of nut. Tangled with it were the smells of tallow, cheap soap, and shonky shop clothing that the ape part of him categorised as belonging to tin flinging man. He had been just another servant in the maze of the university, but now he was a friend of Nut, and Nut was important. He was also wrong. He had no place in the world, but he was in it, and the world was becoming aware of him soon enough. The librarian knew all about this sort of thing. There had been no space in the fabric of reality marked Simian Librarian until he'd been dropped into one, and the ripples had made his life a very strange one. Ah, another scent was riding the gentle updraft. It was easy, screaming banana pie woman. The librarian liked her. Oh, she had screamed and run away the first time she'd seen him. They all did, but she had come back and she'd smelled ashamed. She also respected the primacy of words, and as a primate. So did he, and sometimes she baked him a banana pie, which was a kind act. The librarian was not very familiar with love, which had always struck him as a bit ethereal and soppy, but kindness, on the other hand, was practical. You knew where you were with kindness, especially if you were holding a pie it had just given you. She was a friend of Nut too. Nut made friends easily for someone who had come from nowhere. Interesting. The librarian, despite appearances, liked order. Books about cabbages went on the brassica shelves. Brackets on blitz. Brackets off. U U S S F Y eight nine zero dash nine zero four six. Brackets on. Anti blitz one point one. Brackets off. Although obviously, Mister Cauliflower's big adventure would be better placed in U U S S J three point two. Brackets on blitz. Brackets off nine. While the tau of cabbage would certainly be a candidate for U U S S brackets on blitz plus brackets off sixty dash S P five five dash O nine dash H L brackets on blitz brackets off. To anyone familiar with a seven-dimensional library system in blitz dimensional space, it was as clear as daylight. If you remembered to keep your eye on the blitz. Ah, and here came his fellow wizards walking awkwardly in the chafing trousers and trying so hard not to stand out in the crowd that they would have stood out even more if the rest of the crowd had been the least bit interested. Nobody noticed. It was enthralling and exciting at the same time. Ridcully concluded. Normally, the pointy hat, robe, and staff cleared the way faster than a troll with an axe.